As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Before we get to today's show, I just want to take a moment to thank you guys. Um, if you follow me on the Twitters, you already know, but this past week, we crossed what for me was a very big personal milestone, one million listens. So, <laughs> and given where we started, a tiny, tiny acorn, it's, I'm pretty chuffed. So I went back and checked on the first day of the first episode, a grand total of 32 people tuned in. And that included my family, my friends. So effectively, nobody listened. Two years on, here we are, about 100 episodes later, and we are trucking, as the Grateful Dead would say. Hopefully that doesn't date me too much. I really dig making the show, and when I get messages and tweets and reviews, it's just really gratifying. It's awesome. So please keep listening. Keep telling your friends. And next stop, who knows? 10 million? Anyhow, that's it. Thank you again. And now we can get to today's show. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We got together and we were like, Paul, we're really sorry. It's not quite working how we thought it was. We're sort of running out of money. And he didn't even skip a beat. And he's like, that's okay. You know, I'll give you another 50,000. Go work on the next thing. And coming out of the sort of British startup scene at that point, where yeah. I feel like risk tolerance was completely different, it was just mind-blowing to us that we felt like we'd wasted a bunch of his money. And he was like, here, have some more and have another try. On the program this week, we have Culvir Tagar. He's a transplant from London here in San Francisco. And he just has a really fascinating story to tell. So he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Zeus Living, which is kind of like an Airbnb of corporate housing. Stop. I know that the words corporate housing may have just put you into a coma. But trust me. You'll want to listen to this. Tagar, he's, uh, he started several companies, including uh, his first with Stripe billionaire Patrick Collison. He veered into comedy for a while. And he just has a really interesting personal story as well as some good, really good insight into what he says are some generational shifts around how people view where and how they live. This whole idea of living as a service, which apparently is a thing. Or rather, you can listen to what he says and decide whether you think it is a thing. And he also just has some great nuggets for all those startup founders out there as his path was 
pretty windy before he finally settled on something that he could really sink his teeth into, which is Zeus. So without further ado, I give you Kulvir Tagar of Zeus Living. Enjoy. Why Zeus? So my the Greek god of lightning or something? Uh, yeah, and also of travelers, which was a sort of happy coincidence. That we I found. did not know that. Yeah. First of all, I should say, I feel like I'm pretty bad at naming. If it was left up to me, I would have combined two generic words and called it something like home space. Without a couple of vowels or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I had to pitch the idea at this accelerator we were in called NFX. And in the morning, I woke up and I saw the deck and my co-founder had just named the company Zeus. It's kind of a placeholder name. Yeah. And I saw it and it really hit me. I was like, wow, that was not what I was expecting. I was kind of scared of the name because it just felt so sort of random and different. And then I remember getting up on stage and pitching this idea. And my investor, James Courier, was sitting in the front row and he just had this huge grin on his face when I said the name. And I was like, oh, God, he's laughing at me. And I walked off. And he walked over and he like gave me a big hug. This idea was a big pivot for us. And he's just like Colvier who came up with the name. And I was like, it was Joe. He's like, the name is great. And James is actually a big believer in the power of names. And like, mm. you should actually spend a lot of time in getting them right. And so Joe picked it because it was short, memorable. He was into sort of Greek mythology. I remember a year into the company, we were maybe like four or five people. Someone asked someone else, you know, why were we called Zeus? And then this engineer responded, and he said, oh, it's because Zeus is the Greek god of hospitality. And then I sort of piped up and I was like, wait, not really. Where did you find that? Yeah. And he said, yeah, if you Google it, there's stories of how A, sort of hospitality was a big theme in ancient Greek culture. And then B, Zeus would disguise himself as a traveler and show up at people's houses and see how he would be treated. And if treated well, he would shower them with wealth and gifts and treasures and so on. So I don't remember any of those those stories. I usually remember Zeus like, on a mountaintop, yeah. uh, bringing down hellfire and people not being like, here's a lovely love seat. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I mean, you can Google it. and uh, I'll, I'll check it out. There is a story with Hades. And I think he was the god of quite a few things. But yeah, that's not necessarily one that he's known for. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of names, your previous company was Octomatic. Yep. Which is not a super snappy no, I, I hated that name. <laughs> yeah. So can we go backwards to where are you from? How did you end up here? So I grew up in London, southeast London to be. Which part? It was Eltham. And I lived in like Eltham. Plumstead and Woolwich for a bit, but okay. Eltham mostly till I went to university. I didn't necessarily grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur. I did grow up wanting to get financial independence as soon as I could. I grew up in a single parent household. I remember my default path was banking. Someone had just said to me, you know, if you want to make Go money. Go to the city. Yeah. And for right. better or worse, I did a gap year and I worked at Deutsche Bank on Wall Street, um, sorry, on London Wall. It was there that I met someone, a friend of mine called Sachin, who was also a gap year student who'd started his first business building and selling computers when he was like 15. Right. And so that's when I was like, oh, wait, you can start a business. That's like another path to like making money. And then at university, there was a society starting up called the Oxford Entrepreneurs, which I remember I was walking around at Freshers Fair and there was this little stall and I signed up. 
I was kind of curious. I wanted to join uh, the group. It's when I sort of first got exposed to this idea of Silicon Valley and, and like yeah. tech startups. And this was 2003-ish. Long story short, I ended up starting a marketplace for college students to trade textbooks and other things that they needed because I felt that pain as an undergrad. I was like, why am I buying all this stuff? Someone probably has it. They'd sell it to me cheap. And then, you know, I discovered Paul Graham's essays. He's the founder of Y Combinator and learned about Y Combinator. And then a lot of people seem to find his essays. Yeah. And then kind of that's a spark, which is weird to me. It seems like you can just find some kind of, you know. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like he's a startup whisperer. Like these essays, I still go back and read them quite regularly and there's so much wisdom in them. I remember specifically for us, I Googled startup mistakes and he has an essay called Startup Mistakes or like the top 16 mistakes you make. And I remember point number three on that essay was location. If you're in not the right location, it can hinder you. I sort of knew I wanted to be out in San Francisco in the Bay Area. It was more of figuring out a way to come here and then what would be the push. So we applied to Y Combinator in 2006, which was for the fourth ever batch. They were still doing the bi-coastal sort of San Francisco, Boston thing at that point. Flew out. Right, 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 right. Got interviewed, got in, and January 07, packed my bags and came out here. And where did you live? Did you live in a hovel somewhere? (laughs) So that's actually a good point. You know, it's actually pretty hard to rent a place if you're not yeah. If you don't have credit in America. So we actually looked all over the city and we found one complex called Bayside Village, which is in South Beach, kind of near the ballpark that was willing to take us on. And so we had to sign, I think it was a 12 month lease on an unfurnished place and moved in. That was actually, I found out later where the guy who founded Hotmail was also living previously. And so there's all, there's all these like pockets of history around these buildings in San Francisco, which I think can be quite interesting. So what was your idea? What got you in? I mean, we got in on this college marketplace idea. Oh, okay. And okay. I think Paul Graham, I think the thing that sealed it for us was we told him, so me and my co-founder, Harge Tagger, we told him that we were learning how to code. And we weren't engineers by background or by training. And what did you study? I studied politics, philosophy, economics. PPE. Yeah. Again, like people ask me that sort of question and I actually think what was valuable about that degree was that I learned how to learn quickly Mm. uh, or to cram and blag, essentially. And that actually can help you a lot uh, as an entrepreneur or as a founder where you have to be a generalist. I think he really saw that as a sign of determination. And he, you know, obviously believes that engineers have a lot of leverage. And so he invested in, in us And we came out here and then we met with him pretty quickly and we were like, look, this idea works in England because we didn't really have Craigslist there and so on. But in the US, we don't think it works. And so he actually gave us the idea for Orgtomatic, which was why don't you build a set of tools and software for people who run online businesses and use that as a way to like start getting inventory for your marketplace and then you can build a marketplace. And the larger background theme here was we didn't really think eBay had innovated that much since that when they came on the scene. And we thought e-commerce was going to change. We were seeing sort of the advent of social networks and so on. So I think he basically gave us the idea for Shopify, except we ended up building it on the eBay platform and not the web platform. And he actually also came up with the name. 
I think Paul Graham really likes the sort of octo sound because I also know there was a company called Octopart, which was a search engine for, I think, like electronic parts and stuff. And he also tried to have Reddit be called Octo News, uh, which <laughs> then like vetoed. Right, right, but right. with a British accent, whenever we would tell people that name, no one would understand it. And so no, there'd be OCTO. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Octo, Auto. I was like, auction. Like, yeah. Anyway. And how did you team up? Because one of your founders uh, was Patrick Carlson of Mm -hmm. Stripe. Yeah. So when we came out here, we were continuing this sort of learning how to code thing. And Paul said, it's much quicker to learn if you have a teacher. So he put me in touch with Srini Pangaluri, who's actually the co-founder of Zeus with me. Right. And back then we were thinking about teaming up with Srini, but he had his own startup. And then... Patrick applied to YC for the batch after us with a very similar idea. He was building a product. It was called Shuppa. And then Paul introduced us. And then we met up with Patrick in London. And I remember this day, I think pretty much instantly we hit it off. And Harge and I decided that we wanted to work with Patrick. And his skill set, as I mean, he, he grew up coding. And our skill set made a lot of sense. So then we uh, paired up. But Paul Graham made the intro. So what happened with Octomatic? You know, we sat down and we worked very hard, wrote a lot of code, and launched the product. We launched it at eBay Live in 2006, and we started gaining traction. People were using the tool. I mean, it was still kind of early days and quite basic, but the software for people running businesses online, managing inventory and so on was kind of basic. Yeah. And then we ended up getting an acquisition offer from an e-commerce company based in Canada. They're called Live Current Media, the public. And then we ended up taking it because we just thought with more resources, with their platform, where we were in life, like it was the right thing to do. How long did that take? The acquisition, I think it was maybe three or four months. Three or four months? Yeah. After you launched? I think so. We launched, I think it was around fall. And then December, January was when the sort of acquisition talks happened. They think they closed in like March and then we announced it in the summer. And how much did you guys sell for? We sold for 5 million bucks, which at that time... so you're 20... I was 24 turning 25. Patrick was probably around 19, I think. Harge was a couple of years younger than me. And so you guys each have whatever, (laughs) what, a million something dollars. Yeah. I mean, again... Some of the acquisition was in stock, which didn't really go too far. Did you go out and buy a Lambo or something? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I went and bought a house uh, for my mom to live in in Vancouver. I remember I was writing, actually, for the BBC at the time. What? So Tim Wabers was an editor for BBC News, and I'd met him on the sort of London networking tech scene. And when he found out I was moving to the Valley, he's like, hey, would you be interested in writing about this? So it was a six-part viewpoint series. It's still on the internet. It was called From Oxford to Silicon Valley. I actually remember the first post that I wrote generated this huge thing in London about like, hey, we have a tech scene here. You can be successful here. Right, 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 right. Because I was like, well, San Francisco's a lot better, um, at least back then. And then it just so worked out nicely that each one of those posts, it sort of chronicled us meeting Patrick, launching the product, and then the sixth one was the acquisition. And I remember Paul Graham said something like, now go buy your Porsches or whatever, and I didn't do that. I remember, I remember like Patrick started flying lessons, and you know, it, it was very nice at that stage of life to get a little bit of change and get a little bit of financial security. And we were obviously very lucky and felt very sort of privileged about it. Yeah. So then what do you do? So then 
we all moved to Vancouver. We worked for the acquirers oh. for roughly about a year. That was also interesting. They owned this. Pro- they owned Cricket.com. The acquirers again, yeah, quite random. And the Indian Premier League was taking off in India at that time. Right, right, right. So right. I, being of Indian origin, was sort of tasked with like helping them understand cricket. And I remember going to to Bombay at the time <laughs> and like helping them. They bought the rights for the I think photos and videos online and so on. So had this sort of adventurous twelve months with them, and then left. And I had. I had this itch around, I don't know, let's call it more sort of creative or arts part of my personality. And I ended up doing sketch comedy for a couple of years. And I'm also, yeah, I went to this audition. Well, I was taking my cousin who was training to be an actor to this audition. I ended up auditioning as well. And I think because of the British accent, they ended up taking me into this little sketch group. And then I found out I really, really enjoyed it. And there was something similar about being an entrepreneur and creating a product that people can consume. And then also... I guess, being an artist and creating a show or, or a product that people can consume. So what was it, like a live improv type of group? It was, or? technically it was sketch, so there was a script. We were allowed to sort of improvise or ad-lib when we yeah. wanted to, but it wasn't pure improv and it wasn't stand-up comedy. And it was actually, again, I don't know if you remember Goodness Gracious Me, which was a yeah. sketch series in, yeah. in England. It was kind of similar to that. Like we would talk about a lot of the themes about being sort of immigrants or second generation immigrants in, in, in sort of Western societies. Yeah. But very lighthearted, very fun. And I sort of got to experience this other world, which I hadn't experienced before. And then it was sort of starting to take off. I ended up getting an, an agent and an auditioning. And it was around the time that Slumdog Millionaire came out. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I think Indian faces were much more in demand. And so I would get called to these auditions as the token brown guy for <laughs> these TV shows and films being recorded in Vancouver. But I think after a couple of years, I started to get the itch to, to want to start another company or putting it another way. Right. Enough time had elapsed that amnesia had set in and I'd forgotten how painful startups could really be. <laughs> and there was this like, oh, you know, that sounds appealing. Let's let's go do another one. Is there a sketch that you're particularly proud of? I mean, there was one called Magical Potion and it was... I remember enjoying this very much because it just got a lot of laughs from the audience. But the the plot was roughly there was an Indian girl and a white guy and the white guy was really into the Indian girl and she kind of liked him. But because he was of a different race and maybe the parents wouldn't approve, (laughs) she was sort of like not pursuing it. And he had all the like right attributes as as you know, a potential boyfriend. And then yeah. he finds this magical potion and he gets to turn himself brown. And then I would play that brown character. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, that was loosely the sketch. And so it's I, basically the same guy. He's like a doctor or something. And all of a yeah, sudden he's and a brown then, guy and it's um, all great. I can't remember if, if the joke was more that as the, the brown guy, he, he, he was now brown, but he was actually much worse in terms of how his personality right, right, changed, right, but right. she was really attracted to him or something. I can't remember if that was exactly <laughs> the joke, but I, I do remember the moment when we would do the transition because the guy who was playing the, the sort of white character was maybe six foot four, very tall, very, he had a beard, and, and then he would change into me, and it was just kind of amusing situationally. <laughs> was that on TV? What were you doing on TV or was no, it a live it, audience? No, it was live, the CBC Theatre in downtown Vancouver. Got you. Yeah. So you're doing that two years past. You're kind of like, mm, maybe try something else. Yeah. And so I, then did you come back here? Yeah. So I had stayed in touch with, you know, Y Combinator, Paul yeah. Graham and Trini. And I was like, I want to do another startup. And basically Paul Graham was like, 
yes, you know, let me know when's the right time. You're, here's a check you guys are invested in. And it was around the summer of 2011. Just like, you have money, go figure out something to do. Yeah. Which, wow. you know, there, there's another story here. The first startup, so Automatic, there was a moment where it felt like we were going to run out of money and it wasn't quite yeah. working. And In your I, four months of life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the investment rounds then were, were much smaller. But... I remember Harge and I sort of emailed Paul Graham and we said, hey, could we meet up and catch up? And he he happened to be in London. He's like, yep, let's get breakfast. And we met him and very sheepishly and almost very sort of embarrassed and feeling bad that we essentially felt like we'd wasted his money. We got together and we're like, Paul, we're really sorry. It's not quite working how we thought it was. We're sort of running out of money. And he didn't even skip a beat. And he's like, that's okay. You know, I'll give you another 50,000. Go work on the next thing. And coming out of the sort of British startup scene at that point, where I feel like risk tolerance was completely different, it was just mind-blowing to us that we felt like we'd wasted a bunch of his money. And he was like, here, have some more and have another try. Right. And I didn't really quite understand the risk-taking appetite out in Valley. And also, frankly, you know, the levels of wealth here that these successful entrepreneurs... It's really extraordinary. ...angels make. Yeah. And then they they sort of see the power law nature of how returns can work out. And so it makes sense to do that. So, yeah, so Paul Graham was, was a supporter and I'm, I'm obviously very grateful for that. Actually, then, you know, I think it's actually kind of a bad idea to start a startup without really a good sense of what the problem is that you're solving. And so yeah. it took us four years from 2011 to 2015 to come up with Zeus, where we felt like, you know, we were really solving a problem. And before that, we we built apps and we launched various products that had moderate levels of success. Yeah. But they weren't really having the impact that I wanted them to have. But yeah, in 2011, did Y Combinator move back here in 2012? Got you. Yeah. So you did Y Combinator again. Yeah. And so how many iterations did you do and what were those companies before you landed on this idea? Oh, man. Uh, I feel like I'm bringing <laughs> up trauma talking about this. But at that time, NFC, Near Field Communication, the technology that's sort of in Apple Pay or touchless oh, yeah. payments, yeah, yeah, yeah. this was becoming a thing. Yeah. And we had seen how when you add new sensors to smartphones, I think you can get new behaviors. And I actually remember there was a a YC partner at the time, Kassar, who had just sold his company to Google and he found us and he's like, oh, you guys are working on NFC. This is going to be an all Android phones. Like you guys should get onto this like right now. And again, in hindsight, I think that's a bad way to start a company is to like pick a trend and like try and sort of. Well, it's a little bit like a dog, like chasing a ball, right? Yeah. And, And the crazy thing is, I mean, I got this advice point blank at Y Combinator, like Jeff Ralston and Paul Graham. There was actually an embedded journalist in the batch that we did that later published a book called The Launchpad. I remember he sat in on one of our office hours where YC was trying out group office hours at this time and Paul Graham was sitting at the end of the table and the projections were like, it's going to take four years or five years before this technology becomes mainstream. And Paul Graham just looked at me. He's like, all right, you've got to find out a way to survive for four or five years. And I was just like cringing and I was like, damn it, this is going to make it into the book. I'm going to look so stupid. Uh, But he was exactly right. right. And so we... You know, at least back then, people were saying you'd be able to use your smartphone as a transit pass for payments and all yep. these things. So we were just hacking around that. We, you could buy these NFC tags, these stickers. You know, if you tap your phone on it, 
the phone would respond in another way. But within six months of Y Combinator, the program finishing, we realized that this wasn't going anywhere. If it had been introduced to the iPhone back then and there were rumors yeah, about it, yeah, yeah. that would have been different. But like, look, it's 2020 now and I feel like it's only just coming out. So then we got really good at manipulating sensors on phones and we built this app called Trigger, which was a way, it, it's kind of like this other product called If This Then That, where you know if you connect to, say, your office Wi-Fi, yeah. you could automatically put your phone into silent mode. Or if uh, your phone detects that you're in a meeting from your calendar, it could also put your phone into silent. Or when you go to your car and it detects the car's Bluetooth, it could launch Spotify. So it's very much like a hobbyist tool for people who liked programming these sort of workflows. And now again, I've seen this come into the recent update on the iPhone and on Android. So that app, you know, got over a million downloads. We were making money out of it. We had a premium version. The next iteration was, well, how can we make this mainstream or sort of not so much for the hobbyist crowd? And we built an app called Agent where we just took the five most popular use cases and we just productized them. And so Agent had this sort of, if your battery is low on your phone, it'll put it into a battery saving mode. When you're driving, if someone texts you, it will automatically respond and say, hey, I'm driving, I can't text you So all the stuff that's happening now. Yeah. Again, that got like traction, Uh, lots of people using it, it was covered in the media, but it wasn't going to you know, have the success that we wanted. And then the final sort of iteration was... It's funny, you mentioned a lot of the coverage in the media. I feel like that happens a lot here. Yeah. I'm guilty of this too as a journalist where you're like, oh, this is a cool idea. But then the company behind it is like two guys and a dog. And then (laughs) two months from now, it's going to be gone or just not going to work or be a disaster or whatever. Yeah. But there's a lot of coverage of just kind of things that just kind of flashes in the pan. Yeah. And, you know, it informed the first few years of Zeus where I was like, okay, I got a lot of media attention for all these little products I built, but they didn't really impact us in any way. And then so when we started Zeus and Zeus was working, I was like, I want to stay under the radar for as long as possible because I don't actually want any attention on on what I'm doing. And yeah, just to just to finish that that story, the the last version was this app called Status, where I remember I was at an event and my phone died, and my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, was trying to get in touch with me, and she just couldn't. And I ended yeah. up being at that event for quite late. And I was like, w- wouldn't it have been great if she just known my phone is dead? And so we tapped into the sort of social part of that agent app, where yeah. you could see if someone was in a meeting, or you could see if someone's driving, or why someone is basically unresponsive. And then we launched that, and it was a really pro- polarizing product where for some people, they loved that sort of extra sense of connectedness or intimacy yeah. with a very small social network. And then there were some people that just found it straight out creepy. Then that product went through various iterations, and then it took off with teenagers in Norway, which was this very random Obviously. Thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so what we ended up building, it was kind of Do you of have like, any idea why it took off in Norway? Yes, I do, actually. There's a very high sort of levels of iPhone penetration. Yeah. I think because of the weather and winter, like people are indoors and they're on their phones a lot. Somehow they just seem to be early adopters of social products. So Snapchat was number one in the Norwegian app store chart six months before it was in the US. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know how they found it, but we the product ended up looking very much like a private Twitter that was ephemeral. Right. So you had this closed social network of people that you trusted, like it was kind of high school kids. There was no sort of like long-term history and people, those statuses eventually we allowed people to like just manually update them. Right. And I remember 
the app would get 60 to 70 opens in a day, which was larger than Instagram at the time. And it would spread through a school in like three or four days. And so we had this like, oh my God, we've just randomly stumbled on something that people really want. I actually went out to Norway. We did a bunch of research and we we sort of realized that the founders as we were then sort of early to mid thirties, married, settled down in San Francisco, we're just not going to be the ones that build the next big social app. If you look at how Snapchat emerged, (laughs) Evan was in Stanford, you know, Mark was in college. It was through that app that we got into that NFX accelerator, which stands for Network Effects. Yeah. And then we did this pivot about five weeks in, and then we're like, okay, we want to work on property management and real estate. So how does so how do you go from the teen hit in Norway to I'm doing living as a service? I think a few things were sort of happening at that time. I had seen the evolution of marketplaces online. So Open Door you know, was sort of reinventing this sort of house transaction model. There was a company called Shift, which was changing how... That's how I bought my car. Yeah, how that had happened. Which is amazing, yeah. I had seen the first demo of Stripe in, I think it was 2010, where Patrick had taken this process of creating a merchant account and taking credit card payments, and he'd reduced it to copy-pasting seven lines of code. And I also went back and I reread one of Paul Graham's essays called Schlepp Blindness, which is how we have all these sort of problems around us in day-to-day life that we've just adapted to and we don't really think of them as problems anymore. And the specific spark was my other co-founder, Joe, was moving from San Francisco to Palo Alto. Now, Joe's an engineer from MIT. He's very bright. He had this four-bedroom house in the inner sunset. And just the process of trying to rent it out was taking him weeks, like getting it rent ready, where do you list it, photos, contracts, screening, all this stuff. And then simultaneously finding a place to live in Palo Alto was taking a long time. So here we were in this accelerator trying to think up, you know, what would be the next iteration of status. And Joe was just completely sort of distracted and spending so much time with his house that I actually, I remember I was lying in bed, it was a Sunday evening, and I didn't really think these light bulb idea moments existed. But I was lying in bed and and I just said, I was... It's like, what would be the quantum leap improvement to this process or problem that Joe's going uh, yeah. going through? And I was like, what if you could go to a website, simply type in the address of the property that you're trying to rent out, it gives you a price, and you just click rent, and that's it. The home is rented out, and there's nothing else you need to do. And then I was like, hold on a second, there's a lot more rental data out there right now, I think this could exist. And you know, some of my experience in finance at Deutsche and understanding market makers and yeah. how they bring liquidity into markets, I was like, well, the way I would do this is I would offer to sign a lease with the owner. In that price that I'm offering, you know, I've included essentially my property management fee, any risk that I'm taking around occupancy and so on. And then I was like, well, if I do that, I also have captive inventory to solve the problem on the search side. Yeah. Maybe I could create an experience like buying a book off Amazon or maybe booking a hotel room. So that was the initial spark. And it was interesting because I remember this feeling almost coming over my body of like, I think this has legs. Like, I think there's real potential there. And I was like, I couldn't fall asleep at that point. So I shot off an email to uh, my co-founders and uh, my investor, James. And I remember his first response. This was at probably at 11.45 p.m. And I have all these emails. He responded within 10 minutes. And he's like, look, Kulveer, I'm really excited for you to work on whatever you're interested in and motivated on. But I feel like hundreds of people have tried this. And in fact, there was a company that applied to this batch with this idea. And Gigi, the other partner, he puked all over it. So, you know, <laughs> let's talk, talk about it. I wasn't really deterred. Yeah. And then he sent an email 15 minutes after that. And he's like, 
hold on a second, I just realized I kind of misinterpreted what you had said. I really like this approach because it was a sort of unique angle. Mm. And he's like, let's talk about it tomorrow. And then we couldn't shake the idea for the next week. And then we're like, let's just go all in. And I'm aware that many people have seen rental marketplaces and things like Craigslist and they've tried yeah. to compete with it. And what we sort of realized was a lot of those approaches had been, let me build a better website with maybe more structured data, yep. a better mobile app, or a better search experience. But they weren't really fixing the transactional piece or the information asymmetry that exists between a homeowner and a renter, which is where all the frustration comes in, where you know, if you're a renter and you're looking online, you're like, well, are these photos legit? What's this actual building like? What's yep. this landlord going to be like? And then on the landlord side, you're kind of like, well, is this renter legit? Are they going to treat my property well? And we realized if we sort of intermediated that transaction and take out risk for both sides, then we actually can create a lot of value and fix the process and hopefully capture some of that for ourselves. So that was the initial spark. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. If I say own a home in San Francisco and I need to, maybe I want to go to live in London for a year, work for, work mm-hmm. for the paper. I could go to you and be like, okay, here's my address. And you say, all right, weekend rented, done. Yep. And here's your price per month. Yep. Then what do you do? Because I have all my stuff in the house. So how does that work? Yeah, mostly we take unfurnished homes. So often it's people who have rental properties. They're not necessarily professional real estate people with big portfolios. It's just like, here's this, I know the first condo I bought and now I've moved out to the burbs. Can you manage that? But there are sometimes, you know, people where it is their existing property we can help with the furniture transition if we want to be because right. we'll design it for ourselves, for our customers. So you kind of go in there, you have a team who goes in there and be like, all right, we've got to make this look cool and sleek and blah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah. Yeah. And then on the other side, the supply of renters, mm-hmm. how do you secure that? Do you have like, I don't know, companies who set big multinationals who have people who are moving around big cities and constantly need places to stay? Yeah. So the only thing that really changed from that original idea was that when we were going to rent these homes out, we decided to rent them out furnished. And again, this was kind of on a hunch, but I remembered back to my experience when I moved here. And, you know, I'm a big believer in convenience. And, you know, once you give it to people, it's very hard to to wean off. And I was like, well, when we're thinking about our brand and positioning and all of that, I really want people to associate Zeus with convenience. And what could be more convenient than renting a home that's ready to be lived in? So on that first pilot, we rented these homes out furnished. And then we started seeing traction with essentially business travelers or people who are relocating for work or they're going somewhere for extended projects. And at first, you know, my vision was very consumery. And I was kind of almost embarrassed by that. And I was like, oh, this feels very niche and like unsexy and so on. And about six months into the company, I spoke to a fintech investor in New York, and he was really grilling me about, Colvier, who are your renters? Who are these residents? And I just yeah. told him, I was like, hey, it's these people you know, who are traveling for work, essentially. And he goes, oh, that's really interesting. That means this is kind of a B2B thing. And um, you know, there's a lot of scope for repeatability. And maybe they have a higher urgency problem and a higher willingness yeah. to pay. And so at that point, we decided to just own this B2B positioning. And just listening to all of the kind of all the different turns you took to get here. Mm -hmm. 
is this different from what you did previously? We've talked to a lot of people on the show and not on the show. And it's like, oh, this is my passion. This is the thing that like, you know, when you're completely running out of money and, you know, it looks like it's not going to work. What sustains you is I just believe in this. But it doesn't feel like you had that strength of belief in all that stuff you were doing before. It kind of looked like you were kind of searching for something that you would actually get excited about. Short answer, yes. I think, you know, if I go back to maybe some of my, my background and my upbringing, so there was a period where we lived in kind of council flats in, yep. in, in inner city London. And I remember as a kid always... And was it just you and your mom or do you have siblings? I had my sister as well. Okay. And I remember as a kid really wanting to just like live in a house. So that's where like my first interest in real estate came. Right. And in, in England, they had this scheme where they ended up selling the council houses yeah. to people who lived in I, them. My, so my, first, my first flat was ex-council. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. so my mom ended up buying one in 94. And when I was at university, I think I'd read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I decided to remortgage my mom's house. And we took out a little bit of money. And I bought an off-plan investment for a condo in Mumbai. Uh, my sister was working there at the time for Star How old TV. were you at the time? I was probably 20. And, you know, again, credit to my mom for, like, allowing me to take that risk. That must have like, been a difficult conversation. <laughs> yeah, and she was like, you know, go for it. And it was right. an off-plan investment. So what was nice is I didn't have to give all the money up front. It was right. one of these ones where as each floor is built, you paid another installment, and it would right. take them three years to build it. Uh, so that was in 2004, 2005. That investment ended up doing really well. India grew a lot. Bombay grew yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was like maybe a 100K property that's now maybe worth a million. But I ended up having to sell it because, again, I couldn't manage it remotely. And then I took those proceeds and I started investing in real estate here in the Bay Area in Canada. But I remember as a kid, always I was drawn to this idea of owning real estate in the major cities around the world. Not because I wanted a big real estate empire, but this idea of... Wouldn't it be cool to say you could go spend the summer in Europe or the winter in Asia and just have that flexibility? So I'd, I'd kind of had that desire as a kid growing up. And even though necessarily we didn't have a ton of resources growing up, my mom was a travel agent. And so she would get access to cheap tickets. And she ended yeah. up working for VLM Airlines out of City Airport. And so we would get these, you know, I think airline staff get standby tickets and you can travel yeah. for like 150 bucks. And so despite everything, I got to travel a ton growing up. And I took a gap year and I went backpacking around the world for about five months before university after I'd worked at Deutsche. And even then, I was drawn to this idea of like hospitality and like what it's like to experience other cultures, peoples and, and way of life. And so I think I went on this very long journey, but ultimately what we're building at Zeus is this network of homes that give people a lot of flexibility and mo uh, mobility. And that, it felt very much like this resonates with me and my passion. And generally, I also believe that a lot of human potential is locked up in location. Like I just saw it for myself that when I moved from London to here, things completely transformed. And I've had you know, friends who are in New York, for example, they've had opportunities come up in San Francisco and yeah. then they turn them down just because they're like the friction of moving and housing, like getting rid of the apartment or finding a place to live just ends up being so much that they're like, we're just going to stay here. And so if, you know, have you ever heard of the moving to opportunity study? No. So completely unrelated. We did another podcast, which hasn't run yet with a Stanford professor and he writes about human networks and he told me about this study that the U.S. government did, and it was the biggest and I think only of its kind. And it basically gave groups of people, uh, low-income families, a choice. 
here's a stipend and you stay where you are. That was one group. And then the other group was like, here's your stipend, but you have to move to a better part of town, i.e. better schools, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then they followed them for years and years after. And they found that the group that moved, the kids did wildly better in life because of just where they ended up and the opportunities that presented themselves. And the group that stayed but got the same amount of money, like outcomes did not change. Yeah. I think I have I have read about this and I don't know if it's related to sort of section 8 housing but also whether where people were given the opportunity to move there was also something about actually facilitating or assisting them in actually where to move and how to go about it because a lot of their networks may have yeah. been stay there that made a big impact and yeah when we when we talk about the mission for Zeus what we've landed on is we want to make it easy for people to live where opportunity takes them wherever that may be. And I I hope globally for us uh, someday. In my sort of backstory, my granddad in Punjab in India, I mean, he grew up on a farm. When he was 16, the expectation was he would work on the so-called family business. And I remember I found out the story where he was like, no, I want to continue my education. And his dad said, well, no. And then he ended up going on hunger strike and then running away from home. And he just went to Delhi as a 16-year-old, wow. as my maternal granddad. And then he ended up you know, learning English. He joined the railway industry, which was a big employer in India. He started off as a clerk. And then he became a guard. And he would travel across India. And then he retired as a chairman of the Western Railway Union, which is maybe employs a million people. Yeah. I think back to that decision he made, which then impacted like my mother's life, where she got to travel around India and her horizons were expanded right. versus sort of the, li- uh, the village that she grew in. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to be born in England. You know, I got this opportunity and then now I'm here. And so anything that we can do to increase mobility, I think, is a positive. Of course, there's all sorts of other considerations that come into play. Your original question, like this, you know, we have very strong product market fit both on the homeowner side and on the the sort of renter resident side and it feels something that I'm just very much drawn to the mission and the passion and I think the other thing that you know sort of changed for me was I was kind of impatient in my 20s I remember making this sort of plan the plan was originally sort of long term it's like financial independence by 30 and then I wanted to do some stuff in the entertainment industry, 30s to 40s, and then something in the social realm or maybe politics after that. And I, I guess when that I made... Your, that was your sketched out plan. Yeah. and I, I, My I, wife would love this because <laughs> she's always like, because I have no plan ever. <laughs> and this sounds very kind of deliberate. There was this book that I stumbled upon as an undergrad called Achieve Twice as Much in Half the Time. That It's not one of these popular business books, but it's just a very dense, concise, like, here's how you should go about yeah. things. And I did this goal setting exercise as part of it. I remember I stuck it up on my wall at university and my friends would like sort of laugh. And I think, you know, maybe it's good to have long term plans, but I had no idea of just how long things actually take and the power of like walking on a consistent path and uh, how things compound. Yeah. And so in my 20s, I, you know, the decision to sell the first company and the acquirer that we picked and all this stuff, I was just impatient. And then I had this moment of I was like, well, actually, no, if you're going to work on something, maybe you should work on it for 10 years or 20 years. And actually, Mark Zuckerberg said this at startup school in 2007, where he just said, if you have a longer horizon, it just gives you a big advantage. And because not everyone else is necessarily making their decisions based 
on that sort of a time frame. So anyways, back to the beginning of Zeus, I was like, is this something I could work on for 20 years? And the answer was like a resounding yes. And for the first time ever on, uh, on a product that I was working on, I actually sort of saw the path to growing yeah. it. It didn't feel like a mystery. Yes, there's a lot of risk. I think it's mostly sort of execution risk because there's so many operational components. But it's like people want this, people need this. Here's our approach. And yeah, let's sort of go with it. And so how big are you now? Like how many cities are you in, properties, et cetera? We're in five cities. So on the West Coast, LA, Seattle, Bay Area, and on the East Coast, New York and DC. We have 2,200 homes and we're growing about 4x year over year. Our revenue run rate is 110 million. The company, I think we're at 280 employees now. Wow. feels kind of insane saying that. Again, we're not a pure sort of software startup, you know, about half of headcount yeah. is in operations. Yeah, and our strategy is to sort of go deep in a market. So in the Bay Area, we have, I think, 1,100 to 1,200 homes. We're the largest provider of furnished housing here by a long shot. Right. That gives you a lot of other advantages around the data that you get on pricing, the sort of operational efficiency and scale, the sort of deals that you could do with the demand side once you have a bit more uh, traction. The goal is to like keep growing at this rate and hopefully you know, someday be in the top 100 metros worldwide. Right. Is it always going to be corporate? Because you say a lot of 70% is direct, but mm-hmm. it's people moving for jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. So we looked at our data recently, and we found that a quarter of our revenue comes from people that essentially live with Zeus. And our definition for that is they've been with us for over six months. Yeah. I think our longest resident has been with us for over three and a half years. So when we looked at that data you know, it was a bit of a surprise and we, we dug in and we found that there were some people that, you know, they experienced Zeus as part of a relocation. And then when it came time to, you know, find a place to rent longer term, they were just like, this is so convenient that I just want to stay here. So they come in expecting to stay for a couple of months and then they just end up living with us. Right. And I do think this boundary between sort of what we're calling corporate and just say longer term rentals, I think that boundary is going to get fuzzier and more blurred over time coming back to that original question around furniture you know if you don't make someone sign up for a 12-month lease and the living experience is fast and to your standards then you don't necessarily have to sign up for it you know obviously the price differential as we gain scale I think it'll come closer to just the sort of longer term rental rates but yeah long term the vision is living as a service and this idea that I think in residential real estate, there haven't been too many brands emerge. But if you look at what's happened in the hotel industry over the last 30 or 40 years, I think the same sort of thing was going to happen in residential real estate. So when you move to a city, you will have the choice of, yeah, I would like to live in a Zeus or maybe I'd like to live in a co-living place or yeah. I would like to live in this type of setup. We'll probably see that play out over the next 10 years. And so do you, that's, what I was, that's what I was trying to get at was also just it does feel like there is some kind of generational element here whether it's millennial, Gen Z, or whatever, I'm just like, well, do I want to go through trying to find an apartment, the kind of quote-unquote the old-school way, furniture and driving all over and trying to kind of cobble something together, or do I just want to be like, give me an app and show me where to show up? Yeah, I, I think that trend is happening. We saw it with cars. I think fewer people are getting sort of licenses or buying cars. Even maybe with like cooking and food do i need to invest in all of this stuff if i can just order it and and it hits the spot we had a couple of interns from stanford at the company and 
when I was talking to them, they were like, yeah, if I move to San Francisco after graduating, there's no way I'm buying furniture because maybe in a couple of years I'll move to New York and it just doesn't seem to right. make sense. And there's no way I'm buying a car. I think there is something generational. You know, within the company, we... There's just a subscription economy, effectively. Yeah. Of just yeah. like, why own anything? Yeah. And yeah, is your target then like twen- people in their 20s or early 30s? I do think so. I do think the, the shift that happens in life is when you're maybe ready to start a family or buy a place or really settle down and put down roots, maybe you'll transition out of Azus. We also imagine that right now the homes are sort of fully furnished, but maybe we have just a lightly furnished option where there's an infrastructure in place, but you can still customize it to how you want it. Yeah. And like families will want something that's different from a you know, young professional how much money have you raised? We've now raised 70 million. The Series B was 55 million. Series A was about 11, and we did a seed round before that. Right. What was your worst day? Oh, man. <laughs> Honestly, the nitty-gritty of property management is so painful. <laughs> Where things go wrong, they tend to go wrong badly. I can maybe... <laughs> like, there was one home that we signed. It was in the South Bay. It was a five-bedroom home, had a pool, beautiful, and we thought we got this amazing deal on it yeah. from the owner. And we furnished it, and then a lady moved in, and I think day one, like, the electrics broke. Like, it started raining, and so the electrics, I don't know, something shorted. Day two, the roof started leaking. And day three, the sewage backed up. And <laughs> and this lady was having this horrible experience, and we felt really terrible. We were making it up to her, and then we spoke to the owner. Like, we, we don't really take on those sorts of liabilities from an owner. Like, if yeah. the roof's leaking, they have to fix it. And the owner was like, hey, I'm going to... He was a developer type. He's like, hey, I'm going to demolish this in a year or two and build a new property. I'm not going to spend all this money on fixing it and upgrading it. And then we were in Oof. this situation, and long story short, I think we got out of the property. We compensated the lady. It probably cost us about $50,000. But that was the for, birth of for the... For one... Yeah, one home. And that was the birth of the, the Zeus inspection, where we actually got really deep on like understanding the homes and also qualifying our homeowners, because we only want to work with real estate partners where... You know, they're sort of in it for the long term like yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah, they're yeah. not just like, yeah. you know, trying to find a, a lease for a year and then they're going to do whatever. So th- there have been moments like that where it's been really tough because we know the experience isn't great. This business is capital intense. And so that's kind of puts us in a different category to, say, pure software companies. Yeah, yeah, and we've yeah. had to raise debt along the way and uh, the investor base is slightly different. But here's the nice thing about having two co-founders. Our sort of peaks and troughs are never all perfectly in sync, and so someone can always rally the other. Well, I look forward to it coming to London. Yeah, me too. I feel like I didn't really get to live there as an adult in my 20s, and I feel like the city has improved so much over the last 10, 20 years. I mean, I grew up there in a city, London, in the 90s. Pre-EU. So So you go back, it'll be the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, looking forward to it. And that is all the time we have. I want to say thank you to Culvir for taking the time to chat. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And, of course, rate and review the show, which you've already done, clearly. Um, and we will leave you until next week. In the meantime, um, we'll be, I'll be writing about various things in the Sunday Times. No spoilers this week, but you should check it out. It'll be a fun one. And I'm also on Twitter, at Danny Forts. And you can also email me with any suggestions, ideas criticism even be gentle um at danny.fortson at sunday times.co.uk 
And that is it. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will talk to you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 